Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely uh, to see how the Zendo is settling, everybody's settling in. All the wonderful food that is being prepared, coming to us as gifts from the universe to us to sustain our practice. I remember once years ago attending a retreat here um, and the teacher was uh, Ajahn Amaro from Abayagiri. And I had traveled in Asia uh, a fair bit before I traveled in Thailand as well, but it was the first time where, so I'd seen monks go out on baking rounds in the morning, but it was the first time I remember it penetrating when he would come up and, and we would take turns serving him and him coming up with his begging bowl and just the mind state of reverence with which he received his food, with which he took his food. And I saw the poster um, from, uh, with those lovely words from Ajahn Amro down by the tea table. It's very inspiring. Dogen Zenji says, uh, in life, as with the kitchen, not to disdain poor food or rich food, but to make a feast out of whatever it is we're presented with. To take whatever comes into our bowl, whatever it is that comes into our bowl, plain brown rice, chocolate cake, all of it treated equally with the respect which it's due. Gratitude for the labors of so many that bring the food to us and for our fortunate circumstances. The opening meal chant that we do is uh, deeply meaning to me. When we unwrap our bowls, as Buddha was born in Kaplavastu, enlightened in Magadha, Bodhgaya now, but at the time. Guy was part of this great kingdom of Magadha, taught in Varanasi, entered Nirvana in Kushinagara. Yet we realize the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. In the Parinirvana Sutra that um, comes to us through the Mahayana canon, in fact, I believe in the Pali canon also, the Buddha advocates pilgrimage he, um, to these four sacred spots, to uh, Kaplavastu, or Lumbini, actually, where he was born. Kaplavastu is a kingdom he was from, and of course, his mother walked, as was a custom at the time. She was a nine months pregnant woman. She walked to her own birthplace to, uh, to uh, deliver the Buddha. But Kaplavastu, Bodhgaya, Varanasi, and Kushinagara. It's uh, Ananda asked the Buddha, he said, when, when you're dead and gone, he said, how are we to remember you? How are we to honor you? How are we to look to your teaching? And the Buddha said, well, he said, it's appropriate to go on pilgrimage. He said, to go on pilgrimage to these four places. It's interesting to reflect on what 
a pilgrimage is. I've made a number of pilgrimages in India over the years um, to those four holy places, to other uh, Buddhist places, to Hindu places, some of them very remote, some of them easily gotten to. But a pilgrimage, I think, is a spiritual journey to some place of spiritual significance. Very often, the sutras will talk about accumulation of merit from a pilgrimage. It's a, it's a tricky thing, this accumulation of merit. One of the very famous stories that come to us from the time of Bodhidharma is uh, his meeting with Emperor Wu. When Emperor Wu came to him, and he was a great patron of Buddhism, and he, had, uh, he said, I've, uh, this ragged-ass monk from India shows up, and, and Emperor Wu says, uh, I've, I've built literally hundreds of temples, thousands of temples around China, ordained thousands of monks and provided for their well-being, translated sutras from all over the world, brought them and translated them. What, what merit? What merit is there in that? And Bodhidharma says, no merit. So what does that mean? We, you know, every session, we offer the merit of our practice. We offer the merit of our practice of what's happened for the benefit of all beings. Bodhidharma says, no merit. Is that because the emperor had some gaining idea from this that, oh, that somehow queer the merit? What does he mean, no merit? I have to admit, it's true confession time, I've been a wanderer all my life. Ever since I was a little boy, I've been a wanderer. I'm a wanderer and a roamer. And Gobo uh, at one point says to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, he says, be careful when you step out the door, Frodo. Be careful when you put your foot on the path. You never know where it may take you. That's been very true in my life. And it's also true, I think, that not all wandering is the same and that not all who wander are lost. There's wandering and roaming that's looking for the happiness that seems to elude us round and round on this merry-go-round of desire and aversion. Back when Zanji talks about from dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. We all have some familiarity with that. Wanting and not wanting, never knowing satisfaction, never knowing gratitude. Living provisionally, living now for then. Living now for then. When is my real life going to begin? There's no beginning to this wandering. Round and round, this pivot of I, me, and mine. Like a dog chained to a stake the Buddha said. It's a lovely little passage from the Pali Canon. The Buddha says, monks, this samsara, the cycle of desire and dissatisfaction, the cycle of birth and death, monks, this samsara is without beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. 
There comes a time, monks, when even the great ocean dries up and evaporates and no longer exists. But still, I say, there is no making an end of suffering for those beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. There comes a time, monks, when Mount Simaru, the king of mountains, burns up and perishes and no longer exists. But still, I say, there's no making an end of suffering to those beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. There comes a time, monks, when the great earth burns up and perishes and no longer exists. But still, I say, there's no making an end of suffering for those beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Suppose, monks, a dog tied up on a leash was bound to a strong poster pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that poster pillar. So too, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self, regards feeling as self, regards perception as self, regards volitional formations as self, regards the consciousness as self, all of the five skandhas. It just keeps running and revolving around form, around feeling, around perception, around volitional formations, around consciousness. As he keeps on running and revolving around them, he's not freed from form, not freed from feeling, not freed from perception, not freed from volitional formations, not freed from consciousness. He's not freed from birth. He's not freed from aging. He's not freed from death. He's not freed from sorrow. He's not freed from lamentation. He's not freed from pain. He's not freed from dejection. He's not freed from despair. He's not freed from suffering. Round and round this pivot of I, me, and mine, just like a dog chained to a stake. So there's wandering and roaming, and there's wandering and roaming. There's a story in the Lotus Sutra about two friends, one of them very wealthy and the other impoverished. They'd been boyhood friends, I suppose. And they come together, the circumstances had taken them in different ways, as it happens. I certainly have friends that are now living on the, on the streets, drug-addicted friends from the old days. And I, uh, I'm sitting in this wonderful zendo with all of you. But these two friends had come together, and one of them was very wealthy, and he had a deep love for his, his friend. They had ate, and they drank, and they had a wonderful time, and the poor friend fell asleep. And the rich friend knew that he was having to leave on business and travel on. And uh, from his heart, he took a, a precious jewel worth an immense sum, and he sewed it into his friend's robe as a gift so he would find it in the morning. He'd find it, and he would, wouldn't have to be impoverished anymore. And he went off on his business, and his friend went off on his business, and they didn't meet again for years. And they came back together. He happened by happenstance, he bumped into him in the town again. And he saw his old friend. And his friend was sick, he was haggard, he was even more impoverished than he was before, wearing the same robe that he'd worn before. Incredibly destitute. And the rich friend looked at him and said, well, what did you do with the fortune I gave you? What did you do with the fortune? And the poor friend says, what do you mean, the fortune? He said, the jewel I sewed in your robe. It's, and he went up, and it was still there. All this time, he had been wandering, impoverished. He had a fortune sewn in his robe. Even so, 
even so each one of us, even so your Buddha nature, this jewel that's always there, that's always with us, always with us, always waiting to be revealed. Buddhist monks themselves are wandering. Not all who wander are lost. Zen monks are sometimes called unsui, clouds and water, drifting like clouds and flowing like water. How wonderful, how wonderful to live our lives as flowing water. Water running downhill always finds a way. You pour water anywhere on a rocky path and it finds its way. Oh, there's a stone. It kind of finds its root around the stone or there's a dam. It rises up and it goes over the dam. Running water always finds its way. Never makes a big fuss about it. Just keeps traveling downhill. All of us are wanderers. All of us are wanderers in truth. And it's a wonderful thing to realize it. We sometimes, it's sometimes said that there are three gates of liberation, three doors of liberation. First is the door of emptiness that we chant every morning in the Heart Sutra. It's a door of signlessness, seeing that it's all dirt from the same hole, it's all water from the same well. It looks like all these different things, all this different stuff. The third door, the third gate of liberation is a gate what's sometimes translated as aimlessness. Aimlessness. Doesn't mean sitting back, putting your feet up on the couch and watching the symptoms while you Simpsons while you smoke a joint. It's not quite what it's talking about. It's talking about freedom from clinging. Our suffering arises precisely when we forget that we're wanderers. When we forget that in truth, we don't know what's going to happen next. When we lose our aimlessness and we start to cling. When we cease to take refuge in this mind of awareness, this mind of attention. And we start to seek. We start to crave. We start to push away. And we forget that we're wanderers. We think we have to make something out of things. Have to accomplish something. Get going, Oban. Come on, you got to get going. You're falling behind. You have to get somewhere. You have to get ahead. You know, let go. It's okay. It's okay just to be you. Just as you are, it's completely fine. Just let go. Without running, striving, searching, struggling, not living provisionally, not living now for then, not looking to trade up. Just appreciative of this moment. Just being. Living with appreciation. Living with gratitude. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
doesn't mean that practicing the Dharma, your life is going to go swimmingly. All of a sudden, everybody's going to be your pal, and uh, gold is going to start uh, showing up on your doorstep, and um, you're going to live to be 120. Right? I've known a lot of people who are very sincere, deep Dharma practitioners, and uh, a teacher once said, their life seems to go, uh, and there's this great British phrase, pear-shaped. Life goes pear-shaped at a certain point. It's not about worldly success. The great Indian uh, sage Naropa um, studied for years with the teacher Tilopa, and he had a he, he studied at the University of Nalanda, which uh, this mythical university, which when um, when the Muslims uh, sacked it, I, forget, I think there was somewhere between eight and twenty thousand monks were put to the sword and killed, and when they burned the library at the University of Nalanda. The legend is that it smoldered for eight months, the pile of books. Eight months. It was the greatest library in the known world at the time. But Naropa, who, who was at Naland at the time, had a dream in which a heavenly being came to him, a deva perhaps. Daikini told him where to seek his teacher, Tilopa. And after hard travel, he finally arrived at the river where he'd been directed and asked after this great sage, Tilopa, that he was going to study with, expecting to find some grand presence, maybe. Gold robe, great monastery, golden pillars, who knows? Someone said, well, I don't know about any sage named Tilopa, but there's this old bum named Tilopa. He lives down on the banks of the river. So Naropa went down there. And indeed, he found Tilopa living in rags as a homeless person on the banks of the river, subsisting off fish heads that the fishermen threw away, at ease with the circumstances of his life. At the, shortly after the time of the Buddha, there was this great emperor from Macedonia. Milena always has to correct me. I'm always uncertain where Bulgaria ends and Macedonia begins. It's just still a bit complicated. But he, he was from Macedonia, from Greece, the Emperor Alexander. And there was a famous philosopher in Athens at the time called Diogenes. And Diogenes lived as a homeless person on the street. And Alexander had heard about this guy, and one day he went to see him. And showed up with all of his retinue, his soldiers, and the, you can imagine the trumpets blowing in the fanfare. Whoa, here comes Alexander, here comes the big cheese, you know. And he comes up, and there's Diogenes kind of laying in a, the sun on the street. And Alexander comes up, and initially he's pretty ticked. You know, this guy's just kind of laying there. Here, you know, you could at least stand up and say hi. You could bow or something. Diogenes just lays there, and Alexander comes up to him, and he kind of looks at this guy and says, the place says, you know, it's interesting. He's just so much at ease with this. And he says, you know, he said, I'm Alexander. He said, I'm, I'm the emperor. I'm the guy. I can give you anything you want. What would you like? Is there anything I can do for you? Anything that would make you happy? And Arjun, he says, well, could you just move about two feet over to the side so you're not blocking the sun? Yeah. Alexander said, if I wasn't Alexander, I'd sure like to be Arjun. So Talopa had six basic teachings, very simple. 
I love these guys who keep it simple. I like it that Hogan says, look at the floor. I <laughs> look at the floor. It's six basic teachings. He says, let go of what's past. He said, don't try to hold on to something you can't do anything about. Don't fuss at it. He said, let go of what may come. He said, don't try to figure anything out. He said, don't try to make anything happen, especially in your meditation. Don't try to make anything happen. And he said, relax. Relax right now and rest. So I'm not encouraging anyone to become a homeless person. I lived as a homeless person for a while as a, as a young person, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool at the time, but you know, not so much now. But what an amazing thing it is where a life of practice can take you, be able to feel deeply whatever life presents, and to be at ease with it, to appreciate the simple joy of being alive, to be able to see, to be able to say yes, to whatever life offers, to be able to say yes to whatever life offers. When Dogen came back from China, he says in the Bendoa, he said, you know, his option A was, he said, you know, I could just drift like clouds or like a, like a weed in the water. If I was to do that, if I wasn't to put down roots in Klatskanai, and there was somebody of sincere practice, where would they be able to find me? Where could they call? Sincere students. Sometimes we talk about the path of practice as home leaving. There are different aspects to the practice of home leaving, of course. Each of us has left our home to come here for a week. Some of you who are residents here for longer. You see, there's different facets. There's, of course, monastic ordination, which I hold in awe, truly hold in awe, leaving lay life, leaving families outside the monastery, leaving homes and birthplaces. Expressly taking a vow of obedience to your teacher, shaving your head, donning monk's robes, practicing to illuminate this great matter throughout the day. Noble and inspiring path of practice, relinquishing the self, taking on the path of practice as one's whole life. Amazing. But all of us here are home leavers. All of us are home leavers. Even us lay folks each and every one of us, even those of us with hair. It's this path of practice calls us to leave home in spirit, to practice the Dharma in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, to surrender to our lives moment by moment. Not trying so those of us who leave home in spirit don't shave our heads or wear monks' clothing. 
that even though living at home, remaining among worldly clairs, still practicing to clarify the mind, practicing zazen, practicing letting go and surrender. This practice of homelessness is a practice of not building nests. Not building nests. I don't know how many times Hogan's tried to tear apart. There is nests that I am inclined to build around me. <laughs> Some of them more like fortresses. Setting up fortresses to protect ourselves, protect our what? This I, me, and mine. Storing up treasure as if it could somehow hold back this flowing present moment. Always important to remember the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to grow old. There's no escape from growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. There's no escape from getting sick. I'm of the nature to die. There's no escape from death. So far, so good. I say, well, yeah. Um, All that's dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I'm the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. No building nests. So these five remembrances, and yet underlying it all, out of which it all arises, is this boundless mind, still, peaceful, never busy, always at ease, not of the nature to get sick, to age, to die. So this practice of home leaving, of letting go. Joseph Goldstein once wrote an entire chapter in a book on it. He calls it the entire teaching, a whole chapter on it. He says, I have reserved a whole chapter to sum up the entire teaching of Buddhism. This is what he says. Nothing is worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, Let go and all suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine, self-existing nature and you will experience the freedom of the Buddha. Nothing is worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, let go and suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine, self-existing nature, and you will experience the freedom of the Buddha. So this pilgrimage that we're all on, 
this spiritual journey to some place of spiritual significance. I've always seen the journey down to Seshin. It's always been a form of pilgrimage for me coming down to the monastery. I think those of us from uh, the north share that view. I see Seshin itself as a form of pilgrimage. There's a story that uh, when I was on um, when I was on pilgrimage in India, I, I traveled with um, some teachings from various people on pilgrimage. And uh, this is a story that uh, the great Dzongsgar uh, uh, Kiense Rinpoche um, collected and authored um, in one of his, one of his books. He, um, there's a, probably mo most of you know, or many of you know, there's a, uh, each of the bodhisattvas has a mountain that's sacred to them. And the mountain that's sacred to Manjushri in China is Mount Wu Tai Shan, Mount Wu Tai Shan. And um, this is uh, a story about somebody who made a pilgrimage to Mount Wu Tai Shan. There's a Tibetan monk named Lodro. And Lodro had felt tremendous devotion for the Bodhisattva Manjushri. And one evening, he came across an amazing passage in a book. He was reading about how Manjushri had vowed three times that he would show himself, this bodhisattva wisdom would show himself to anyone who traveled to Mount Wu Tai Shan. Made a pilgrimage to Mount Wu Tai Shan. So for Lodro, this was the most wonderful and inspiring discovery. He got so excited that after a sleepless night without eating breakfast, he ran to his master's house to ask his permission and blessings to visit the mountain. At first, Lodro's teacher did his best to convince him that such a journey fraught with danger and hardship was entirely unnecessary, but Lodro wouldn't be convinced. Again and again, he begged his master to allow him to go until eventually he gave up and agreed. In those days, traveling was difficult, but Lodro, undaunted by the dangers that lay ahead, packed enough food and medicine for several months onto the, bank of his donkey, onto the back of his donkey, waved goodbye to his master, his family, all of his friends, and he set off across the Tibetan plateau. The terrain was extremely tough. He had to cross several fast-flowing rivers and survive the punishing heat of empty deserts where his only companions were venomous snakes and wild animals. Nevertheless, after several months, he arrived safely at Mount Wu Taishan and immediately started searching for Manjushri. He looked everywhere again and again, but he couldn't find anyone who even vaguely resembled the Bodhisattva. Then one evening, as he rested his back against the cold iron steps of a monastery, he fell asleep. Next thing he remembered was walking into a lively bar where a boisterous crowd of locals were drinking and laughing and having fun. It was late, and Lodro was tired, so he asked for a room. But the enormously large madam, who sat behind a small desk at one end of the main corridor, told him they were full up. But he could sleep in a corner of the corridor if he wanted to. So he accepted, gratefully, he took a book out of his luggage, Dharma book, which he started to read before he went to sleep. But before long, a rowdy gang of Chinese boys burst out of the bar into the corridor and started making fun of the madam who was in charge. And Lodro tried to ignore them, but the teacher, the leader of the boys caught sight of him and swaggered over to examine him. What are you doing here? He demanded. Not quite knowing what to say, Lodro, in his innocence, found himself telling the Chinese boy about Manjushri's vow. And the boy just laughed and laughed. He said, you Tibetans, you're so, you're so superstitious. Why is that? 
He said, and you actually believe what you read in books. I've lived here all my life, and I've never even heard of anybody called Manjushri. Shaking his head in disbelief, he turned back to his friend saying, winter's coming. You better go home before you freeze to death. Whole gang then staggered back into the bar for another drink as the madam and Lodro exchanged a look of relief. A few days later, on his way back from another futile trek up the mountain, Lodro bumped into the same Chinese boy. You still here? exclaimed the boy. All right, I, I give up, replied Lodro with a wan smile. You're right, I am too superstitious. So you finally had enough, have you? crowed the Chinese boy. You ready to go home now? Well, I thought I'd make a pilgrimage to Mongolia on my way home, said Lodro. I might as well. It's on my way home, and it'll mean this journey wasn't a complete waste of time. Lodro looked pretty sad, and there was something about the way his shoulders slumped as he spoke that softened the Chinese boy's heart. Tell you what, he said, slightly less aggressively than before. You don't have much money. You run out of supplies. So you're going to need some help. I've got a friend in Mongolia. I'll write him a letter. And if you deliver it to him, I'll sure he can do what he can for you. The next lo day, Lodro again packed up everything he had on his old donkey and feeling depressed and disheartened, took one last look at Manjushri's mountain, hoping desperately that Manjushri might appear at least long enough to wave him goodbye, but no. Crowds of people rushing backwards and forwards gave up nothing but the Chinese boy with the letter he'd promised. Lodro thanked him, tucked the letter into his yakskin coat, and left for Mongolia. After several more months, he finally reached the town where the Chinese boy's friend was supposed to live. Waving the letter in his hand, he stopped everyone he met to ask where the recipient of the letter might be found. To his surprise, every single person he approached burst out laughing. He was puzzled. Eventually, he met an old woman who managed to control herself long enough to ask if she could read the letter. Lodro gave it to her without reading it himself, and she said it carefully and then asked, Who wrote this letter? Lodro told her the whole story. She shook her head and sighed. She said, Those young men are always bullying helpless pilgrims like you. But there is one creature I know of who has the name written on this letter. If you really want to deliver it, go to the rubbish heap at the edge of the village. There you'll find a pig. He's very fat, so you can't miss him. Lodro was a little baffled by this information, but he decided that he was already so close he'd go to the rubbish heap and have a look at the pig. Before long, he found a huge hill of garbage on top of which had an extremely large and rather hairy pig. Feeling a little self-conscious, he unrolled the letter and he held it up in front of the pig's small, bright eyes and was completely astounded when the pig appeared to read it. And once he'd finished, the pig started weeping uncontrollably and fell down dead. Suddenly curious about what could possibly have such a strong effect on the animal, Lodro finally read the letter. It was very short. It said, Dear Dharma Arya Bodhisattva, your mission to benefit all beings in Mongolia has been accomplished. Now, hurry back to Mount Wutaishan. Signed, Manjushri. Amazed and reinvigorated, Lodro rushed back to Mount Wutaishan with just one thought in his mind. This time when I meet Manjushri, I'm going to hold on to him tightly. I'll never let him go. His first stop back on the mountain was the bar where he had taken shelter. And Lodra asked her if she'd seen the Chinese boy. She said, no. She said, those boys are always on the move. Who knows where they'll be? His heart sank. But she said, you're tired. She said, why don't you just go to sleep? You can look for the boys tomorrow. And she offered him his old place in a corridor, and he fell asleep quickly, only to wake up with a start 
to find himself slumped against the step of the monastery in the freezing cold. There was no sign of the madam. There was no sign of the bar. There was no sign of the town. Physically, he was on Mount Wu Taishan, the external realm where Ranjushri said to live. Had it all been a dream? Did it matter? Had he made his pilgrimage to Mount Wu Taishan? How can this pig be a bodhisattva working for the benefit of all beings to free all beings? It's ridiculous, eh? Great poet William Carlos Williams wrote this beautiful little poem once. It said, So much depends on the red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Can you see that this life of ours is not so different from a dream? Not so different from a dream. A waking dream. All arises in the mind. How can this pig be a bodhisattva, this filthy pig living on a rubbish heap? It's interesting. We, we come into the zendo and everybody has this mind state of complete reverence when they come in. Or when you go to the toilet. You say, well, this is sacred. This is sacred space. The toilet, well, that's just the toilet. That's where I go to shit. Every place is sacred. It's the mind that makes good and bad, sacred and profane, sees others instead of oneness, clings to ideas of how it should be, how I want it to be. Your life is a pilgrimage. Your life is a spiritual journey. Your life is the path for each one of us. Each one of us a wanderer. Each one of us roaming. There's another story about Mount Wu Taishan. It's in a commentary on one of the koans, I think. And there was this old woman who, one of these dreaded tea ladies, dreaded Zen tea ladies who lived at the crossroads of the ways of Wu Taishan. And the monks would come along the road and there was a crossroad so they weren't sure which way to go and they'd inevitably ask her on the pilgrimage and which, which way do I go to Mount Wu Taishan and she'd say straight ahead, straight ahead and they would go off and she'd say there he goes a fine upstanding monk but there he goes just like all the others well, it's a beautiful little story straight ahead this Buddha mind this truth we seek is neither here nor there. It's right here, right now. It's always right here, right now. Look at the floor. Listen to the sound of my voice. Listen to look at the glow of the lights. All one thing. All water frozen down in different shapes. Just this flowing present moment.
each moment, just as it is a manifestation of the truth. Dogen doesn't think so much about pilgrimage. He says, why leave behind the seat that exists in your home and go aimlessly off to the dusty realms of other lands? If you make one misstep, you go astray from the way directly before you. Why go off? But we're always on pilgrimage. We're always on the path. Usually we think of a path as a road taking us someplace from where we are now to some other place. But our life itself is a path. Our life itself is the way. We're always on the path. Always on the path. Sometimes I'm just a little more confused about it than other times. Zenji says in Kupin Sazengi, he says, the way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and unhindered. What need is there for concentrated effort? The whole body is far beyond the dust of the world. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? The dust of thought, perhaps. It's never apart from one, right where one is. What's the use of going off here and there to practice? And yet, if there's the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. One's just making initial partial excursions about the frontiers, but still deficient in the vital way of true emancipation. How can we dispense with practice? How can we dispense with negotiation of life? Cease from practice based on intellectual understanding. Stop trying to figure things out. Pursuing words and following after speech. Take the backward step that turns your light inward to illuminate yourself. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. It's hard to know. It's hard to know sometimes what to be thankful for in hard times. Sometimes gifts aren't immediately apparent. Hard times, hard people seem like problems. In Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow, he encourages us to be grateful for people who torment us. People we don't like, to see people we don't like, people who torment us as bodhisattvas working to free us from our clinging minds. 
free us from our suffering, our sense of separation and isolation. Like the pig in Lojo, everything we encounter, each aspect of our life is working to liberate us. Look, look, Hoban. It's not the way you think it is. Not some dead stuff you're interacting with. Look, it's all your life. All arises in the mind. It's all a manifestation of the truth. In our lives, it's hard to see what's the sickness and what's the medicine. We think we know. We think we know. But really, it's just our idea of what we want. Sometimes even zazen can be a sickness. Sickness of hiding out from our life. Not just practice all day. we can say that grasping after things can be a sickness. The sickness of a sense of a separate me that endures through time and space, separate and apart from the flow of this present moment. This me, this me continues from moment to moment to moment. But I have to say that even that delusion is medicine. This moment working itself out, moment by moment, the wondrous display of this. What? What is this right now that's happening? Symphony? Dream? What is this? Where does it come from and where does it go? We're all of us on this path of our lives seeking the truth that will set us free, seeking wisdom. The problem is we don't understand the teaching that's right in front of us. We don't hmm, understand the, the language. We want it in words, and of course words are no help. The floor teaching us the truth of emptiness A bite of apple teaching us the truth of life and death. A tree teaching us the truth of impermanence. We want someone to tell us how it is and what to do. But the truth we're seeking, the truth that liberates, can't be conveyed with words. You talk about it all you want. You can have some deep philosophical understanding of it. Read books of koans about it. It's not going to be any help to you when some guy cuts you off in traffic and starts to scream at you, or you lose your job, or your spouse gets cancer. Reading some beautiful, rich teaching on equanimity, oh, it's so poetic. It's not going to provide much equanimity in challenging times. Would that it was otherwise. Would that it was possible to convey the beauty of a sunset to someone who's blind taste of honey to someone who's never known sweet. The truth is always present, calling to us. But it has to be realized by each one of us, alone. Each one of us has to walk through the gate 
ourselves. That's to be made real through our zazen, through our direct experience of this moment, through our gratitude. In the zendo, we all love the blissful, rich times of practice, open, spacious, boundless mind, merged with the whole universe, wonderful. But equally important, more important, is the time spent sweating and pulling in harness. These times when it feels like a struggle, dry, why bother? It's exactly these challenging, hard, dry times that are absolutely necessary for the manifestation of that spacious, boundless mind that open into some experience of openness that lead to some realization. So it's hard to know what's the medicine. Each session is different, and each one of us is different. But it's true that it's not infrequently the case that the second day of session can be challenging. It always is for me. First day, my mind says, okay, this is kind of cool, nice, get some depth. Second day, it says, okay, Hoban, you've had your fun. This is painful now, or boring, or you fill in the blank with your own favorite, one of your five ignorances. Sometimes, as the mind starts to settle and become more concentrated, the aspiration for realization manifests as a dissatisfaction with some existing state of mind, an aspiration to go deeper. Sometimes some feeling of agitation is a precursor to some deeper state. Don't judge your own practice. If you want to suck the life out of session, if you want to suck the gratitude out of this moment, activate your judging mind. Start comparing it with other moments. Start looking at what's wrong with it and how you're going to fix it. Don't judge your own practice, please, my friends. You've got no way of knowing. You really have no way of knowing how your practice is going. What would you judge by? What's the standard that you would judge by if you've never tasted chocolate cake? True for all of us. Don't judge your practice and trust in the practice. Your thinking judging mind. This can't help you here. Want so much to help me. But it's this thinking process itself that exactly gets in the way of the direct, intimate experience of our lives. So trust that nothing's amiss with your Zazen practice. Don't fall into thinking or worrying about it or trying to fix it. Just sit. Just sit. Everything will sort itself out. Each one of us has to walk through the gate ourselves and 
it requires it requires aspiration and it requires determination there's a dharma teacher that I have great respect for who told me once about her first session and uh she described herself as hiding out from life at the time, but she's sitting session and she, the second day or the third day, she went in and it was um, an interview. She was talking to the teacher about how hard it was and she couldn't do it and there had to be some way and how could he help? And he said, you have to find your own determination. And she was so angry and she went back to the cushion and she said, you know, I sat down and I found my determination. I found my determination. I found my aspiration. The Zendo is very quiet right now. Everybody is remarkably concentrated. And because of that, we're going to forego interviews this evening to give everybody the opportunity to practice themselves without having any need to go in without disturbing the Zendo. Practice gratitude. It will all sort itself out. Thank you for practicing so diligently, my friends. So many beings reap the benefits of your practice. Thank you.